Where are the roller coasters at Nomadland? Just how well do you know the back of your hand? Excited to announce that Ollie Mann has some thrilling news. Yeah, well, exciting news for you if you like listening to Ollie Mann. If you don't, this isn't exciting news. It's just news. Well, it's news you'd want to avoid. <laughs> That's all news for me. <laughs> if you um, feel like you're not getting enough of me by having a, a monthly slash fortnightly version of me on this show, mm-hmm. there is now a daily version of me you can put in your ears every day. A daily dose of Ollie Mann. Imagine waking up to these pipes every day. <laughs> It's called The Retrospectors, Ooh. and it's a kind of on-this-day-in-history idea. So um, it is a history show, but it's kind of a history show for people who don't like history. Like, it's not going to be, uh, you know, this is the day Hitler became Chancellor. We're not doing that. <laughs> You're just picking the fun bits, like when they invented uh, Sherbet Dibdabs. Exactly. Picking the fun bits is right. So we're doing, you know, this is the day cats opened in the West End. That's the uh, show. Ollie Mann's version of history, the real important <laughs> stuff. Exactly. So if on this show uh, you are a fan of the sort of quirky stuff I like to dig up, you know, the invention of glow sticks, for example, mm. or um, how children children's shoe shops used to have x-ray machines in them, (laughs) then this is the kind of show for you. So every day, 10 minutes, you can fit it into your daily routine on your 10-minute commute from your kitchen to your home office. Uh, We discuss uh, a kind of quirky moment, a curious moment from history that happened to happen on that day. Although, I must say, uh, it's not particularly topical. So if you don't listen to it on the day it came out, that's fine. Just binge. Uh, It works pretty well, I think, that way too. So it's sort of like one of those uh, tear-off desk calendars where it's got an interesting uh, fact for each day to brighten your time. Yeah, and, and an interesting, you know, uh, adjacent fact and an adjacent fact to that. I mean, part wow. of the joy of, of podcasting, as we know, is going down little Wikipedia holes. So, I mean, we often start with a fact that seems like the fact we're going to be discussing, like the first ever Grammy Awards. Uh, and within a few minutes, we ended up discussing which came first, Alvin and the Chipmunks or Chip and Dale, the <gasps> Disney Chipmunks. Whoa! Anyway, it's really fun. Uh, and uh, events we have coming up on the show include the last ever witch trial in America, mm. which was in 1878, amazingly. I'm mm. sort of surprised it wasn't in the 30s. 20th century. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we talk about the launch of Hitachi's magic wand, which uh, most people think of as a vibrator these days, but genuinely appeared to be created as a personal massager. That's a vibrator, Ollie. <laughs> yes, I suppose it is. Um, and much else besides. So you can find that at The Retrospectors. Type The Retrospectors into the very app that you're listening to this podcast on now, and you'll find it. And click follow or subscribe or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and if if you don't remember the name of the show, just go to ollieman.com and I'll, I'll put a link up there as well. It is a proper, like, trivia bomb. It's a fact blast. It's ten minutes where you learn a lot. Did you consider calling it fact blast? We considered calling it virtually everything you could imagine, but, like, every name to do with anything to do with this day in history, on this day, you know, blast from the past, all of the obvious ones. They've Not only have they gone, but there's, like, ten podcasts called that. Did you consider mansplain with a double N? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like this is genuinely like an entertainment show. If you're a fan of, you know, No Such Thing as a Fish or How Stuff Works or this show, then this is a show for you. So that is The Retrospectors, the latest addition to the man repertoire of podcasts for your daily pleasure. Get in now for your daily pleasure. <laughs> Ribbed for your pleasure. Here's a question from Robin, who says, I must qualify my question by stating that I'm a bit of an old fart. I'm in my late 60s and have been listening to your podcast since about episode 10. Wow. Thank you, Robin. I mean, I'd go as far to say you weren't an old fart, Robin, when you started listening. You've been listening since episode 10. That's, what, 2007. So you'd have been mid-50s. So, you know, mid-life fart then. 
I would argue that people in their 60s are not old farts. I think old fart is more of a state of mind than age. I agree with that. Robin says, I'm just watching a TV programme about meerkats and something is puzzling me that I hope you can answer. As a kid, I liked animal programmes, Zoo Time with Johnny Morris being one that springs to mind. However, I have no recollection at all of meerkats appearing until my own kids were watching animal programmes in the 1980s. Yeah, Johnny Morris didn't have a funny voice for meerkats, that's why. Uh... You could only do lions. (laughs) So, Ollie, answer me this. Were meerkats invented in the 80s? Or did they used to be called something else? Or did they get signed up to a good agent in the 80s, getting them more airtime? It's true, I also don't recall seeing meerkats at the zoo when I was a kid in the 80s. Yeah, what were the popular things then? Penguins. Penguins were definitely high up the list, yeah. I mean, obviously the big cats are the big attraction at a zoo, but not really for a kid. It's the interesting thing, so like my, my son Harvey's now five. Mm. Meerkats are his favourite and mm. he's never disappointed because they're always there. We went to Drayton Manor last weekend. As soon as you enter the zoo, you see the meerkat enclosure. Is that, do you think, because of fucking Compare the Meerkat, which I think has been around for about 12 years now? Well, obviously it's tempting to point the finger at uh, Sergey and Alexander and their uh, PR overlords. Certainly give the finger to the PR overlords <laughs> of an insurance company. Uh, website. I object to like advertising things becoming beloved. The Compare the Meerkat campaign was born primarily of the unpopularity of meerkats online. Huh? Or at least compared to car insurance comparison keywords. Oh, <laughs> so, Jesus Christ. I mean, like, virtually every animal is like not relevant to car insurance unless it's like running over cats. What happened is the marketing agency noticed that the search word optimization price for Compare was £12 per click, whereas Meerkat they could get for five pence per click. So that whole campaign, I mean, that's why it worked, is they threw loads of money at it because that's the money they would have thrown at just trying to monetize the word compare. And they instead created a market around meerkat. It was pretty clever stuff. Uh, But yeah, no, meerkats were already growing in popularity before that. Yes. Well, Robin is right about the 80s because in 1987... David Attenborough presented Wildlife on One on the BBC and apparently that programme meant the British public was suddenly much more aware of meerkats. I haven't seen it. Presumably there were some uh, gorgeous meerkat shots with a thoughtful, raspy voiceover. And then a few years later, he did a follow-up, Meerkats Divided, which must have been capitalising on the fact that he had stoked all this meerkat interest. Well, I think part of it, once people get to grips with how meerkats work, that makes them popular is because... And we were talking last episode, weren't we, about how there's a danger of anthropomorphizing too much with certain species. Hmm. In terms of meerkats, they really do have social structures, don't they, that are similar or at least relatable to the way that humans behave. Yeah, they're communal. But you can monitor their behaviour. You can see why they're angry with each other. You can see when they're working as a team. You can see why they're hiding from each other. It's not always so obvious watching other animals. Do you think they were also popular because there's a meerkat in The Lion King, which came out in 1994? But then not all animals from the Lion King became popular. Like, warthogs didn't become a kid's favourite, did they? Hold on. Are you saying that the animal that isn't Timun or Pumbaa, I forget which, is a meerkat? Timun is a meerkat. I have not actually seen it. I mean, I literally saw it yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) And he doesn't really read as a meerkat. That's interesting. You know, you think about how vividly drawn all of those animals are, like the opening sequence, famously, of the Lion King and how they capture all the essences of all those African animals. Actually... Funny, maybe because Timbun and Pumba are just like a unit and you see them as like a funny vaudeville act. You don't really notice that they're animals at all. He's a wisecracking meerkat. Circa the period that I was working at this morning at ITV, I know that meerkats were already something of a big deal. 2005, 2006? Yeah, I, I don't know if I've told this story on the show before, but um, there was a, like, I think it was a Nat Geo programme called Meerkat Manor, or it was mm. on Discovery or, or one of those animal channels on Sky, Animal Planet, whatever. 
And it was surprisingly popular. Like it was the one animal documentary that when it was on would beat Channel 5 in the ratings, for example. Wow. Yeah. September 2005 was the premiere of Meerkat Manor. <laughs> there we go. Thank you, Alexa. So yeah, when I was working it this morning, it was my job to produce an item about Meerkat Manor. I can't remember who we had on the show, the director or something like that. But also along with the job of producing the item uh, was I had to script the pre-roll gag. So people forget this, but... Uh, with the comic chops of Philip and Fern, as it was Aww. back then, one of the things that we used to do on this morning to keep people tuned in uh, after Jeremy Kyle uh, is we'd have a little kind of comedy gag before the show started, before the titles kicked in. Is this why you made us do those in the first 70 episode of Answer Me This? And I really hated them. No, no, Helen, I know how to produce a show. Um. <laughs> Luckily, most listeners uh, came in after that, but Robin will remember. So there you are. So as well as co-scripting shit jokes for my own podcast, I was co-scripting shit jokes for ITV. <laughs> so like, if you produce the item, you had to write the pre-roll gag. That was how it worked. So like, okay. I had the meerkat thing. And I needed to think of a joke to do with Philip and Fern about meerkats. So what we did was, it was a sketch where Philip and Fern were sitting down on set. Fern was reading a copy of Broadcast. Mm-hmm. That's a way of implying to the audience something about insider stuff or TV ratings. Yeah, I wonder like how much the trademark of the broadcast industry really reads to the daytime ITV viewer. You make a valid point. But nonetheless, it's, it's still comedy shorthand, I think. And she looked up and she said, God, this Meerkat Manor program's doing well. Before you know it, they'll be asking us to have Meerkats on this show next. And then you go back to the wide angle and Philip Schofield has turned into a meerkat. That's the joke. (laughs) As if the intervention of the producers has decided that she'd be better with a meerkat co-host. Anyway, that was considered good enough to put to air. Um, (laughs) So we had to film it and I got a meerkat costume. I can't remember from where. And then the day came and of course, there isn't anyone on the staff to play a meerkat. That's not a job. So it fell to muggins here. So, wow, you managed to get a meerkat costume at short notice that fits a six foot three person. (laughs) That's impressive. But the problem with me wearing the meerkat costume is that I was then legitimately wearing a meerkat costume about an hour before we went to air. Mm. We pre-recorded that sketch at about 9.30. Show started at 10.30. And from memory, the first guest was Andrew Lincoln, the actor. Egg. Yeah. And I had to go and brief him, like tell him what was coming up on the show. You know, are we going to be asking him about that difficult time in his life when X, Y, Z? And <laughs> I was still wearing the meerkat costume because I didn't have time to change. Aww. And uh, I do remember him looking at me as if to say, dude, you could have come in three minutes later not wearing a meerkat costume. You're obviously trying to grab a load of attention here. This is not appropriate. Do you think he wondered if he was having a hallucination? <laughs> Were you wearing the head? I wasn't, no, I was carrying the head next to me. Should I have changed? But I was really sweaty. Like being under hot lights wearing a meerkat yeah. costume is sweaty. I didn't want to go in there covered in sweat either. Right, right. I was just kind of grateful that it wasn't like an item about orphans in Rwanda or something, that at least it was a showbiz item that I then had to prep dressed as a meerkat. You could have put a jacket on over the meerkat costume. <laughs> just to formalise it. That's a great outfit. Yeah, probably more warm, but you're already very warm. Uh, here's a question from Kaylee in Winnipeg, Canada. Uh, who says, a few times I've heard Ollie mention the phrase, an albatross around your neck. Mm. Don't know if I was referring to myself at the time. Uh, <laughs> well, from context, I imagine this must mean an obvious burden. Helen, answer me this. Where did this extremely strange phrase originate? Well, it uh, comes from the rhyme of the ancient mariner, which is a poem by Samuel Taylor Coleridge about, well, it's an ancient mariner telling the story of uh, how he kills an albatross even though it is uh, thought on his ship to be 
Very unlucky to kill an albatross because albatrosses are lucky. They are the sailor's friend. Although in truth, sailors mm. did eat them. The sailor's friend, like fisherman's friend in that sense. that You, you eat a fisherman's friend. <laughs> oh, good point, Martin. You don't have to shoot one, though. And it is a bit unlucky to eat a fisherman's friend. I can vouch. Unless you've got a very heavy cold, in which case they're great. But if you have any taste sensation remaining, I would <laughs> say stick clear. That's all they should have done, actually, as a COVID test, isn't it? It could have saved loads of money. Suck on a fisherman's friend. Can you taste it? Then you haven't got COVID. Not scientifically accurate, everybody, just saying. And the sailor and his ship are punished for killing the albatross because uh, the ship is just uh, stuck on the ocean, which is very calm, so it's not moving anywhere. Uh, They run out of water to drink. There's another famous phrase in the poem, water, water everywhere and not a drop to drink. Mm. And the other sailors blame him for killing the albatross and force him to wear the dead albatross around his neck as punishment, which I would have thought is a punishment for everyone because that would stink. But I thought we'd eaten it. How can no, he wear it no, around his he, neck if he's eaten it? He didn't eat it, he just killed it. The poem starts at a wedding, and the ancient mariner is this old boat dude who goes sidling up to a wedding guest to tell him his story, and the wedding guest is just like, God, I, I'm, I'm, I'm wedding, I'm trying to be entertained here, I don't want to hear bullshit about boats. The wedding guest reminds me of you, Helen. <laughs> in the original text, the mariner gets as far as there was a ship, and then the wedding guest interrupts, Nay! If thou'st got a lastsome tale, Marinaire, come with me. <laughs> wow. Is the wedding guest like, I've got to go to the bard? Exactly. And he's even harsher in the later edition. Uh, really? The Mariner says, there was a ship, and the guest says, hold off, unhand me, greybeard loon. Ah. Uh. <laughs> That's my display name. It's a good put down, Helen, for you to remember next time someone starts telling you about their yacht. Uh. <laughs> unhand me, greybeard loon. Anyway, then the Mariner's punishment is to watch all of the other crew die, and somehow he lives on. He lives on long enough to tell people at a wedding about how he killed an albatross, and that was a real fucking mistake. Uh, he's now forced to wander the earth telling the story of the dead albatross as a warning not to kill albatrosses themselves. But that's not really a burden, is it? I mean, of course it is having a burden, having a big fucking bird round your neck. It's a burden for everyone else listening to the fucking story. The <laughs> wedding guest apparently the next morning was a sadder and wiser man. That's a hangover, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. But it's funny, isn't it? It's come to mean burden, but actually it's it's a bit more complex than that because it's kind of punishment, isn't it? Like it's, yeah, it's, it's like um, retribution. Right. Because millstone round your neck would be a burden. Albatross yes. round your neck is like cosmic revenge for something you did. You've deserved this burden. This burden is owed to you. Now, you wait 14 years for a question about the romantic poets and then two come along at once. Uh, here's one from <laughs> Gemma who says, I recently came across the information that Mary Shelley lost her virginity on her mother's grave. It was a graveyard smash. Oh, if this is true, how did that come about? And who with her future hubby, Percy Bysshe Shelley? Where is this sexy grave? Ollie, answer me this. Is Mary Shelley a randy mare who lost her cherry on her mother's grave? I'm not qualified to say, but I can confirm that it seems undisputed that Mary Shelley did lose her virginity, and yes, it was to Percy Price Shelley, Uh, on her mother's grave or at least in the cemetery where her mother was buried and they used to meet at her grave yeah which is in uh, St Pancras in London yeah but I believe Mary Wollstonecroft has been disinterred since and moved to Bournemouth but the grave is still there it's just empty (laughs) so if you're feeling horny yeah you don't have to worry about what Mary thinks (laughs) (laughs) Oi, keep the noise down but I think there are a few important qualifying statements here so that we kind of understand the context. So he was married. Yes, to another 16-year-old. Which was normal at the time. I guess. And he was only 21. Yeah. So they had to meet somewhere that was secret. And she, as an unengaged female, couldn't really go about meeting 
men, particularly married men. So she needed a reasonable cover story about where she was going. Cemeteries were kind of public spaces then. They didn't have many public parks, as we've talked about before. Mm. They were landscapes. They were beautiful compared to a lot of the developing, encroaching city. And so it was a normal thing to go for a walk through a cemetery. That wasn't weird, especially when so many families had been so blighted by death. You know, you'd have six siblings and four of them would die or whatever. That was pretty normal. So it wasn't unusual at the weekend to take a walk through the cemetery. And it was a place they could meet without anyone questioning either of them why they were going there if they found out. Well, she went there all the time because her father had um, a sort of non-macabre attitude towards death. And uh, Mm. because her mother died when she was 10 days old and she never knew her, this was her place to commune with her mother. She would go and read her mother's books there. And her father was like, this is how you have intimacy with dead people. You go and spend time with their graves. He taught her to read by tracing the letters on her mother's grave, because her mother's also called Mary. And it was the church where her parents had got married four months before she was born. So it was a meaningful place to her where she went regularly. Also, like, it's not surprising that she's a bit of a live one. Because, (laughs) I mean, not only did, you know, she do things that we we know still, you know, invent sci-fi with Frankenstein, but also, as you say, she was the daughter of celebrity liberals. Yeah. William Godwin and Mary Wollstonecraft. That's like being the daughter of... Tim Robbins and Susan Sarandon. So there'd almost like be an expectation that you'd be open to the natural world. You wouldn't be ashamed of your sexual urges. You know, you you would have a different attitude to inherited wealth to everyone around you. So that all of that kind of comes into it as well. Also, her parents were not into marriage, as evidenced by the fact they married just four months before their child was born. Mm. I think probably because it was such a tremendous amount of hassle to have a child out of wedlock then. But I think they had fairly progressive attitudes to sexuality. Mary Shelley and Percy Bysshe Shelley had a lot of uh, extracurricular relationships. I mean, he was also sexing with Mary Shelley's um, sister, which is uh, maybe keeping it a little close to home. It's worth mentioning that William Godwin did disown Mary Shelley for having it off with with Percy. So um, eventually, I think he came around after like 10 years. Well, after Percy was dead. Yeah, despite the fact that he'd written books about the institution of marriage being outdated and all the things you said. Um, actually, she was right to be cautious about telling her father that she was having an affair with a married man because he did not like it when it happened. Did you ever hang out in a cemetery? Uh... I seem to recall eating a KFC bucket in a graveyard oh. at some point in my teenage years. I don't remember what I was doing there or how I got there. That's but... the saddest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> it was a tribute to the fallen. <laughs> it's the circle of life. Yeah, I think if if I were to have a grave, which is not my posthumous wish, I wouldn't mind people eating a KFC bucket on it. <laughs> Maybe I'd put a nice uh, a nice seat on it instead of a gravestone or a, or a sex couch for teens. I got celeb spotted at my own father's funeral. Whoa, that's not a good time. It doesn't happen ever, so it was really weird that it, I mean, it happens if I'm in a place where I know that there's lots of podcasts. If I'm at a podcast festival, then it happens, or possibly Glastonbury or something. But it doesn't happen generally in <laughs> cemeteries. Um, what happened? I don't remember that. In Jewish cemeteries, it's very much in and out because you've got to be buried quickly. Yeah. You know, some days, if there's been a lot of death, they have, you know, you get a 25 minute slot and then the next guys are in and they're waiting outside to come in when you're on the way out uh, to the plot. Um, and so, you know, there's a little queue outside the chapel. And um, a mourner coming out of the session just ahead of me spotted me and said, I know you. Oh, no. I, I knew straight away from the way he was saying it that he didn't know me and what he meant was he knew me from watching me do paper reviews on Lorraine or whatever <laughs> I was like oh yes hello he goes I listen to you on LBC 
I was like, oh, thank you. He goes, what are you in for? Oh. And I was like, well, that, that would be my father's death. He died three days ago. Oh, God. <laughs> That's drop. awful. How did he respond to that? I think he would have just said, I wish you long life. That would be the knee-jerk Jewish reaction. So right. That's oh. like the thing you say to someone who's just been bereaved. But, I mean, the face said, oh, have I just put my foot in it? Yes. But actually, you know, he hadn't. He wasn't to know. You were at a cemetery, though. Exactly. Striking up a jolly conversation at a funeral is something you should approach with caution, I suppose. That's the point. Yeah. Mm. At least it stopped me from, like, having to engage on, what do you think about that, Nigel Farage, then, eh? <laughs> I mean, we didn't get that far. <laughs> if you've got a question, email your question to answer me this podcast at googlemail.com. 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 Here's a question from Rihanna and Owen, who say, Ollie, answer me this. Which actor has played the most US presidents on film and TV? The actor has to play different characters, not simply the same president in multiple episodes or films, but they have to have played a mix of fictional and real presidents. A cursory Google didn't help much, and in our desperation to get an answer without any of the hard work of actual research, we are turning to you. That is what we have built this empire upon. Yeah. <laughs> People being too lazy to Google, but not too lazy to email. Yeah, this was 40 minutes of my evening the other night. I'm never going to get it back, so let Aww. me tell you what I've learned. Very excited. The easy fact to find, if you were to have just Googled it, which is always square one, yeah. even for us. Mm-hmm. Um, we're only human. <laughs> is that the actor with the most presidential feature film roles, so the mm-hmm. sort of technical answer to the question, who's played the president the most, is a guy called Sidney Blackmer. Uh-huh. Um, and that, that is because he played Roosevelt in six different films from Whoa. 1937 to 1948. They weren't sequels. They weren't made necessarily by the same people. He was just like, oh, you need a Roosevelt? I know a guy. Uh- <laughs> oh, so it's like if you need a Blair, you get Michael Sheen. Yeah, so, so that's the, sort of the technical answer to the usual question, who's played the US president the most. But um, Owen and Rihanna's uh, stipulations do kind of make this more complex and interesting. So if they hadn't specified... Uh, that they're looking for the person who's played a mix of fictional and real presidents, Uh but had stuck to stipulating that they played a variety of characters, i.e. who has played the most fictional presidents, then I would have plumped for Ronnie Cox, (laughs) Mm -hmm. who played President Tom Kimball in Captain America, the president in Martians Go Home, President Jack Neal in Murder at 1600, and President Simmons in Nadia's Promise, all fictional presidents. Wow. I find that interesting, by the way, that the one in Martians Go Home is only credited as the president. <laughs> it's interesting in how many IMDb entries the role is just called the president if it's a fictional president. That doesn't surprise me because they can just say Mr. President. Yeah. Or Madam President if they're being radical, which they rarely are. Yeah. I wonder if any of the presidents had doctorates or they doctor presidents. Yeah. That's a different question. Carry on. And it would be... I guess in some of those films, maybe even just like a behind-the-shoulder shot of someone answering the phone saying, yeah, nuke him. You know what I mean? It wouldn't be... <laughs> there wouldn't be a scene. In terms of playing multiple real presidents, there aren't so many. And I suppose that's because obviously you've got to look like the guy you're playing, and it is obviously always a guy. So uh, the most honourable mentions there would be John Voight, who's played Roosevelt and Washington. Mm-hmm. And uh, the most lauded would be Anthony Hopkins because uh, he got Oscar nominations for playing both Adams in Amistad and Nixon in Nixon. Wow. But uh, since they have stipulated a mix of fictional and real, the most famous contender might be Nick Nolte because he's done real in Jefferson in Paris and fictional in Graves. But in terms of quantity, I'm going for... 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> you still listening, chaps? Yeah. <laughs> there was a lot of qualification. Riveted. It's actually a semi-famous actor, though. Bo Bridges. Right. Oh, okay. Bo Bridges has played three fictional presidents. President uh-huh. Paul Hollister in 10.5, President Hank Landry in Stargate SG-1, and President uh-huh. Ralph Warner in Homeland. But he has mm-hmm. also played Richard Nixon in Kissinger and Nixon. Oh, Okay. So there you are. He's done only one real president. As I say, it's rare to play more than one real president. Yeah. But his three fictional presidents gives us a tally of, of four, which is nearly as many as the five that Ronnie Cox has played. And he gets a bonus point too, as far as I'm concerned, because his dad, Lloyd Bridges, played the president in Hot Shots Part Duh. <laughs> Drain the swamp. And his brother Jeff Bridges got Oscar nominated for playing a fictional president in The Contender. So the Bridges are like the Kennedys of presidential acting families. But none of those films are particularly great, are they? That's the intriguing thing. Like, it, it, I guess the people who do, re- I mean, probably Anthony Hopkins ones are the best. But even then, Nixon and Amistad are a bit dry. Uh, I haven't seen. How's Frost Nixon? Frost Nixon's great, although it very much feels like a play that's been turned into a film. Which it is. But I think Frank Langella might be one of the best real president performances that I've seen. I mean, Daniel Day-Lewis is obviously amazing in Lincoln, but the film is dry as fuck. Is it? Yeah. Mm. I was just thinking about the Gregory Itzin, who plays President Logan in 24, mm. who's like the corrupt president. Not Dennis Haysbert, the good president. But um, he looks a lot like Nixon. And presumably, if he's going to play any presidents, it's going to be the Nixon or fictionalised Nixon ones. Like, So maybe that's the thing as well. Like, You can't play that many real presidents because... If you physically resemble one, don't physically resemble the other ones. Well, the good thing about uh, playing Nixon is that if you develop your jowls, then you can also do Churchill, can't you? I think John Lithgow might have possibly done both. We have a question now that is (laughs) linked in the sense that it's sort of about politics. Yay! It's from DD who says, "Uh, I've seen many occasions, especially in the USA, in which animals have been appointed mayors. Running unopposed. Yes, loads. Loads. <laughs> Not just as mayors either. In 2015, a crawfish ran for president. <laughs> Although you have to be over 35 to run for president. And I don't know how long crawfishes live. So, Helen, answer me this. Have there been any instances of animals defeating someone electorally? I first found out about these thanks to my Veronica Mars Investigations co-host Jenny Owen Youngs, who told me about the current dog mayor of Idlewild, California, Max II, who is a golden retriever. He took office at 11 weeks old uh, after Max I died. Two of the deputy mayors are related to Max II, so dodgy, isn't it? <laughs> and um, he's mayor for life, which a lot of them are. You think, well, that's a bit corrupt, but uh, obviously dogs' lives tend to be shorter than human mayors. So he hasn't actually defeated anyone. He's inherited his title. Yeah. Coronation. Yeah, it's which is worrying. I do think at least golden retrievers have a good temperament for this kind of office. <laughs> but the question was, has an animal ever defeated someone? You said, oh, a, yeah, you yeah, said yeah. a crayfish ran for president. When's an example of yeah. an animal defeating someone in victory? In 1938. A time when nothing of significance was happening in the world. <laughs> you might as well run an animal. A brown mule named Boston Curtis was elected committee man for the city of Milton in Washington. It was running for the Republicans, but it was a jape by the Democrat mayor of the time, Kenneth Simmons, who wanted to prove the point that voters didn't know or care who they were voting for. Uh, so it's satire. Yeah, Boston Curtis didn't do any campaigning. Uh, he didn't have any public platforms and the Republicans didn't give a shit. They were like, yeah, sure, I'll vote for a Republican. 
without even thinking, is the Republican human? What does the Republican stand for? Mm. So, yeah, that is an instance of an animal beating a human. I don't know how it went. I think if we're honest, we've we've all thought about that. Like, I mean, as it happens, the day this episode's being released is the day of local elections across the UK. I believe really it's important to go and exercise my democratic right. Mm. But sometimes where I live, there is not a candidate who I particularly like or who particularly represents my feelings on an issue. And I don't want to spoil the ballot paper, so I do. I mean, that's the point of the party system, isn't it? You do just, in the end, just click for the party that you like the most out of the ones that are on there if you haven't done your research. Would you vote for a cat if there was a cat as your (laughs) protest vote? Well, that's my point. I wouldn't necessarily know that it was a cat because all that it gives you is the uh, postal address (laughs) of where they live doesn't mention species often the animal elections are because the office of mayor is not super important in that location and they're doing it as a fundraiser right so it's a charity thing yeah the town of rabbit hash in kentucky has a mayor called wilbur who um, is a french bulldog also in line to play nixon they have never had a human mayor but they started having mayors in 1998 in order to fundraise. And um, in 2020, they had the election on the same day as the presidential election. They raised $22,985. And anyone from around the world can cast a vote in the rabbit hash elections as long as you pay a dollar. See, knowing that there's a fundraising component, that makes a difference. Because I've always wondered, when I've seen these things, it's kind of a funny, you know, viral moment to share on the internet, isn't it? But I've always just thought for the people that live in that town, for those poor fuckers that live in the town, like... It's almost like kind of putting on your road sign as you drive into the town, isn't it? Uh, you don't have to be mad to live here, but it helps. You know, we're all a bit crazy. And I was just, used to think, well, yeah, but people actually do live there, you know, and they, they're going to need public services and their kids will have special needs and they'll get disabilities and they'll need to park somewhere. And, uh, you know, your fucking hedgehog mayor will not know what to do in that situation. <laughs> yeah, but if, I mean, a lot of these towns are really, really small. It's not like the mayor of San Francisco is likely to be canine. Yeah. These are like a few hundred people. I mean, London didn't fucking have a mayor until pretty recently. No. And that's a very large place. But once you've carved out a budget and you've said, I mean, London is a good example. You know, this is going to be, I think, the third or fourth largest position of state in this country in terms of budget. At that point, it's inappropriate to run an animal, surely. So I guess it's just how much power these animals have. Um, I, I wonder if anyone's ever had some real purse strings to pull. Also, Wilbur didn't run unopposed. There were 16 uh, people running for mayor. Well, not people, dogs. Mostly dogs, but also a donkey, a rooster and a cat. I wonder what those pre-election debates look like. Probably very cute. I mean, I must say, if I was opening a supermarket or, you know, putting an extension wing on my museum, I would be more happy to have a golden retriever turn up wearing a mayor's outfit than a mayor. Yeah. I'd have to entertain yeah. with a three-course meal and pretend it was important. Yeah, you'd have to have a conversation with them rather than them just going... <laughs> Yeah. And maybe throw a ball for them symbolically. Because the only point is to get a picture in the local press while the picture's better with a golden retriever and then to be able to put a plaque saying this was opened by the mayor of such and such, which you would still be able to use. So, yeah, might as well be a dog. There's um, a town called Lajitas in Texas, which has had animal mayors ever since 1986 when a goat called Clay Henry beat the human incumbent mayor and also a wooden sculpture of a Native American and a dog called Buster. Hmm. The goat won by a landslide. Sounds like quite quite a tightly contested election, actually. <laughs> well, it's, it's now a dynasty because uh, six years later, Clay Henry was succeeded by Clay Henry Jr. And then Clay Henry Jr. was headbutted to death by Clay Henry III, who is still alive and still mayor. The first Clay Henry was um, a real boozer 
and the public used to be allowed to feed him beers and he would sometimes drink 35 bottles of beer a day. Oh my god. It sounds more like the medieval kings of England than uh, the presidency actually. But it's not all animals either. In 1967 apparently a foot deodorant powder won a mayoral election in Ecuador. What? I suppose the other point to an international audience is to say look this really is a democracy. We can run anything. We can do you know we have freedom to take the piss out of this and if people vote for it that's what they get like so you can satirize kind of the weaknesses of the system but you're also saying to people look in this country we're allowed to have a sense of humor about democracy because it's so embedded and it really is free look i suppose that's part of it although that's not at all true about american high politics is it it's kind of true about british politics in that you can stand a candidate but a national election, yeah. you would never have a chance in America of getting a sausage into Congress, would you? I was uh, very excited that Count Binface recently followed me on Twitter. Wow, the Count Binface? Actual Count Binface. Well, you can't tell who's behind the bin. I'm an influencer, you want to be who I am. You envy everything on my Instagram. But it's all stock photos, my life's a total sham. I can't even do yoga. But I'm a real health expert. I use Squarespace. All my photos and advice are all in the one place. And I built a store so you can buy into my taste. $8 smoothies. <laughs> Thanks very much to Squarespace for sponsoring Answer Me This and for making it so easy for you to set up and run a website for your campaign to get your goldfish to be mayor. <laughs> Martin, I've actually found an ideal Squarespace website for you. Uh, okay. Eggshopnyc.com. <gasps> oh. They are an egg-based restaurant. I looked at their menu to see what kind of eggs you can get, and obviously you've got your Benedicts or whatever. Mm-hmm. But they've mm. divided the menu into three parts, sandwich, burrito, mm-hmm. or cruiser. What's a cruiser? That's a really good question. There's this amazing, like, carousel at the top of all of their food. It looks really enticing. It's porn for you, isn't it? I told you, yeah. Is there a contact page so you can send them a form asking what an egg cruiser is? <laughs> anyway, the templates on Squarespace are so good, it is like having your own web designer on your team, but you don't have to pay them for their time. No, if you've already spent all your budget on the egg designer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, try it for yourself by going to squarespace.com slash answer and take out a two-week free trial so you can play around with your gallery of eggs. And... When you're ready to sign up, you can get a 10% discount off your first purchase of a website or domain if you use our code ANSWER. Here's a question from Darren in Toronto. Darren says, For most of my life, I have been told that I'm stingy when it comes to chipping in money for dinners or a round of pints or joint gifts for family and friends. I will admit, as someone who never had a lot of money growing up and into my poor student years, I was a penny pincher. That's a great phrase. I love penny pincher as a phrase. It's so kind of Victorian, isn't it, somehow? And when I would put up the money for something shared, I would often hound the other participants for their share. Mm. However, I have, for the last five years or so, really tried to erase my reputation of being a cheapskate. I will always pay for a shared meal up front. I will generously tip. I will always get the first round in. And when an expense for something that is not paid up front by me, I will pay my share within minutes of the purchase. The opposite of a penny pincher. He's a a dollar spreader. Not as good. It's not as good, is it? No. Now that I am in a position to pay my way, I genuinely like to go above and beyond when I can. All right, Darren, we get it. If we went for a meal, you'd pay. Fine. Often often letting money that is owed to me by friends in lesser situations slide. Uh But 
I still get cracks and jokes from my friends about how tight I am with money. I try to shrug it off, but to be honest, it's really starting to get to me and make me feel hurt. So Ollie answered me this. How can I get my friends to stop treating me like I am some miser? Ooh, oh, feel your pain, Darren. If you ju- Exactly. If you just said to them what you've just written to us, they'd probably stop. If you said, I'm actually quite hurt by this because I'm trying really hard and I used to have no money and I used to be a poor student and now I'm not and I'm trying really hard, they'd probably stop. But more broadly than that, I'm curious how long you've known these friends. Right. The, it does seem like friends you've had since childhood, are, you're more likely to have a friendship based on jokes of cruelty. That's right. And actually, that's not necessarily in itself a problem if everyone's on the same page. So, you know, whilst they're calling you a penny pincher, what are you calling them? Like, if you have a a, a mutually reciprocal relationship based on roughly the sort of in-jokes that you had when you were 15, I think that can work even if you're not happy with the one that's been assigned to you. I think the problem can be when, you know, they're still slagging you off for that, you've changed, yeah, and you feel like you're not being equally labelling of them. As uh, humour goes, I think a lot of people feel kind of trapped in a past version of themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When the friendships don't evolve with you as individuals. But that's almost inevitable if you don't spend much time with each other. Yeah. You know, if there was a time in your life where you were intensely always around each other, that's your collected experience, isn't it? Um, it's just unfortunate in this case that Darren's kind of embarrassed about it. But there's no reason to be embarrassed about the fact you were poor, Darren. No. I suppose it's it's just if you felt that you were sort of needlessly penny-pinching that you might now feel a bit ashamed. Correct me if I'm wrong, Martin, but I sort of see some of this in Martin's behaviour where when he was a student, which was for a long time because he did a PhD, he didn't have a lot of spare cash. Yeah. And when he did have an income when he started his career, then he would be a lot more generous as a sort of like balancing thing even though i don't think you owed anyone anything martin it took me some time to adjust as well like just to realize that you know you've got money so like even for a while after i was working i, I was still very very careful about money i think it's pretty frustrating if people are still treating you that way that must be quite yeah. annoying if you're like well i've really made an effort here you, if you feel like you're being doubly shamed for like basically being poor and then being shamed for not being generous when you are being generous that you know, maybe just stop paying for things and <laughs> like, buy their own fucking drinks. <laughs> That's true. If you're never going to combat the stereotype, just run with it. Or just be generous to the people who don't do that. <laughs> right, yeah. Don't go out for dinner with your friends that treat you mean. Well, do that. Go out for dinner with them, sure, but don't buy them dinner. Let them pay, don't fucking yeah, just, deserve yeah, it. Use it. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, that's a good point. Pick over the bill. Because it, in a sense, their, their perception would only be changed if you sort of suddenly gave away 95% of your income to a stranger. You know, there's there's no way of overcoming what they think. <laughs> probably still take the piss. The only thing is that we don't have any evidence except for what Darren has told us in this email. Mm. So there's just the possibility, but please forgive me, Darren, because I, I don't know, that when you say, I, I will generously tip, I've been with people who think they're being generous when they're in a tipping culture that is like 15 to 20% and they'll tip 5%. Yeah. They don't get why that's a problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I'm not saying that's you, but if that is you, it could be that your version of generosity is different to other people's. But then when you talk about like the process of paying your fair share up front, you know, letting other people's stuff slide, that is really frustrating. The thing that I do when I go out with the same people, I'm talking pre-coronavirus, obviously it hasn't happened for two years now, but when I go out with the same people regularly, 
I buy one meal, they buy the next, and we don't actually talk about how much it costs. I mean, so long as one isn't in Burger King and the, the next one's in the Ivy, then it doesn't really matter. Because <laughs> ex- one of us is paying for the experience of the other one's company and some entertainment. You haven't got this issue about splitting then. Are you talking about when you go out with one person? Because I think if it's a group, that gets really complicated and also really expensive. I think it's fine if it's the same group. But yes, I suppose I'm talking about up to three or four people that are always the same. It yeah. does get complicated otherwise. You could say... I think we should do this thing where I pay this time, you pay next time. Here's me paying for the whole thing. By the way, it makes me feel a bit uncomfortable when you say da-da-da-da-da. Yeah, but if he's trying to prove a point, that just they'll be like, well, that doesn't compensate Darren mm. for that meal you didn't pay for in 1996. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder whether post-COVID, I mean, this all seems like a distant prospect at the moment because uh, I can't remember when I last went out for a meal with other people. Right. But I wonder whether post-COVID, like, dining practices will be different. I wonder if for a new generation, like... The stuff about it seeming anal to chase up particular amounts of money just won't be a th- it won't be penny pinching because it'll all be done through technology. So, like, if an app just tells you that what you owe is twenty one pound sixty six and you're splitting it across a digital currency, it's actually well, there are those apps yeah, for splitting. I know, so that's what I mean. So, like, the Darrens of the future probably won't have to worry about this. It'll all be sorted out. Well, also this summer, I can imagine a lot of socialising will take place in like public outside space where you all bring your own picnic and you don't yeah. have to uh, <laughs> perfect, struggle Darren. over bills. Yeah. You know, there might as well be some positives out of COVID, Darren, and I, uh, I hope one of these will be yours. <laughs> Hello. I'm Wilson, the ball from Castaway. And here is my song about my favourite balls. Football, rugby ball, volleyball ball, tennis ball, Zoe ball, basketball, netball, handball, debutante ball, bowling ball, baseball, big sweaty ball. Answer Me This Sports Day, a marathon of fun and games, out now at answermethispodcast.com slash albums. Thanks to The Great Courses Plus for sponsoring this episode of Answer Me This. And providing everybody who subscribes to their excellent service with a world of knowledge. I've been watching uh, Cooking Across the Ages. Oh, yeah. Which is so much fun. It's taught by a guy who is professor of history at a Californian university. But instead of filming the whole thing in an academic style, he's filmed it in his kitchen. Oh, cool. And... It's not like a Nigella perfect kitchen where it's not really his kitchen. This is definitely his kitchen because there's like bits of sauce everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) And it's all kind of ad-libbed culinary history. So he's read his stuff and he's written loads of books about culinary history. But what he does is he makes food. So he does pasta from Renaissance Italy. He does spices from medieval France. And the episode I was watching last night is um, America's Can Opener Cookbook, (laughs) in which he revisits the Can Opener Cookbook from 1951 by Poppy Cannon and recreates some of her food. So there's like a tinned meat jambalaya and a frozen sherbet cocktail. The one that made me want to bath was a canapé, which is tinned crab, cream of mushroom soup, grated cheese and Melba toast. It's the combination of the tinned crab and the cream of mushroom soup, I think, which would be uncomfortably close to the texture of vomit. (laughs) Yeah. It's also Mm. just like the idea that you might take a quite upmarket ingredient, albeit in a tin. So you know what would make crab taste better? Tinned soup. It's just weird, isn't it? Well, Campbell's cream and mushroom soup, people are always putting it in stuff. Pies. 
casseroles. I work in, in a pie, but tuna with crab. What he talks about, which I found interesting, was that there just wasn't a stigma on canned food in the 50s. No. It must have been like pretty exciting to be able to get some things that would not go off for years. Yes. It was trendy. It was the convenience of being able to prepare really quickly. Yeah. That seemed modern and progressive. It's not like now where people are like, oh, you've made a microwave meal. Why didn't you cook it from fresh? Well, also now you have fridge freezers domestically, which in the 50s was not guaranteed. Are you not tempted to try any of these dishes? Well, no, because he wasn't. (laughs) That's the weirdest thing about it. Because that's the thing that underlines that it is very much a lecture rather than a cookery programme, is he makes all the dishes, but then there isn't the shot at the end where he goes, mmm, delicious. It's too risky. (laughs) The history of uh, cooking and and cookbooks is such an insight into social history. I mean, he'd say this, wouldn't he? Because he specialises in this subject. But he says the best way to understand a culture is to look at their cookbooks. You understand so much more about how what people did in their downtime and what people did when they wanted to impress people than you can from other historical accounts. Yeah, and what was aspirational at the time. And I guess you can literally then make it and taste what they would have tasted, you know, which is part of the thing, isn't it, with historical experiences. People always want to recreate the smells and the sights. You can't really do it, but you can with food. Yeah, but just also remember in the 50s, people smoked a lot. So maybe that had dulled their taste buds enough (laughs) to make some of those recipes uh, tolerable. Anyway, you can try the course yourself and many, many others. So many. By getting a free trial at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash answer. And answer me this, listeners, will also get 20% off annual membership at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash answer. Hello, Lyndon from Huddersfield again after all these years. Helen, Ollie, answer me this. How long are you supposed to keep your coffee in a cafeteria? Because some people tell me two minutes, some people tell me ten minutes. I'm like, I don't really know. I mean, I personally go for about the length of a song on the radio, three and a half minutes. Yep. Yep. Obviously, that doesn't work if they're happening to play Hotel California at the time or anything by Jim Simon. <laughs> but Just the solo. American Pie. <laughs> as a general layman's rule, I find like if the radio's on, I wait till the song's finished, then the coffee will be ready. But if you look at pro websites or coffee manufacturers, the Ely website, for example, mm. they do tend to recommend three to four minutes. So, yeah, my Man in the Street version, which I originate myself, is, is pretty solid, I think. What I find a bit frustrating is that they recommend always, they recommend the water to be hot but not boiling. Right. Mm. I'm just like, who lives in that world? Like, it's like with the hot water bottles, isn't it? Don't put boiling water in here. Like, what else am I going to put in here? Let's be honest. Mushroom soup. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Good specific cake capacity. Who boils a kettle, then lets it cool for a bit before they put it in their French press? Well... Well, no, I do. So tea's the opposite, right? For black tea, you have to... Tea's got to be boiling. Yeah, you want the you literally want it to go click, and then you, you're immediately pouring it into the into the cup or into Your the pot. Your glasses are steaming up, or it's not good enough. Whereas with a coffee pot, you can boil the kettle... If you're making your coffee and you haven't quite finished it when the kettle boils, you can wait 30 seconds a minute and then pour the water in it and that's fine. By all means. Be laissez-faire. Take a relaxed attitude. Play it easy. That's fine. That's why people drink coffee, right? To chill out. (laughs) Yeah. You can get those uh, kettles that boil to different temperatures. Well, not boil, obviously, unless it's 100 degrees, but they'll do 80 degrees. So maybe that's what they're talking about. Well, there's a thermodynamic spread, so some of the water will be at 100 degrees. It's not like every single molecule is at... 85 degrees. But I've found that teas where they're like, put 70 degree water on it. I've only had tea that has been bad because the water's not been hot enough, never the other way around. Here's another question of coffee on the phone lines. Hi, Helen and Molly. It's Matt from Solihull. Just grinding coffee this morning. In countries where it grows abundantly, is there an application other than roast bean drinking it? Like, do they eat them like baked bean? Because it's obviously just a bean, isn't it? Well, it's not actually a bean. It's more like a berry. Hmm. You can understand why he'd think it's a bean, though, because you buy coffee yeah. beans, don't you? That's what it's yeah. called. But the beans come out of a wider, greener thing, don't they? Like a like a pea pod. Yeah, well, it looks a bit like... um. They're called cherries. They're not related to the cherry either, but because they have that kind of 
soft outside and they look a little bit like a round grape to mm. me. Horticultural nomenclature is so confusing, isn't it? It is. Constantly, yes. is it a pulse? Is it a berry? Is, is it, it a, a fruit? fruit? Is it a vegetable? Is it a droop? Is it a droop? Yeah. Is it even a nut? No. Um, it's but coffee. I think it was called bean just because it looks a bit like a bean. Some people do eat or drink the berries, which will give you that caffeine buzz if it is a caffeinated strain of coffee. Not all of them are. The cherry is a sort of fruity flesh around the bean before the bean is roasted. So mm. that stuff is usually just thrown away. But people are trying to make the coffee cherry juice into a thing or they make it into flour somehow. Yeah, I've seen a thing where you can turn used coffee grounds which is part of the same process, obviously, into yarn, and then you can make that into active wear. That's amazing. There's shitloads you can do with used coffee grounds. Yeah. Exfoliants, fertiliser, slug repellent, uh, worm attractor. Yeah, it's odour-absorbing, apparently. So it works yeah. well as hiking socks. <laughs> <laughs> You're just, like, just going to pack coffee grounds onto my feet. That'll yeah. work. Yeah. Also, it's in skincare because the fruit is high in antioxidants. So that's how they're trying to use it. However... They're really cultivating coffee to sell as coffee. Yeah, well, fair enough. It's a popular product. It is a very popular product, and it's it's quite um, vulnerable as well. Like, a lot of it doesn't work. And it's also very, very water-intensive. It's something like 147 litres to grow the beans for one cup of coffee. I've realised recently, I mean, this is making an obvious point, and I know it's how all addictions work, but I've <laughs> realised recently that one of the reasons I like coffee, it's not just the taste of it, it is that I'm addicted to it, and different strengths of coffee do have an effect on like the reason i enjoy a particular day is because i'm feeling the withdrawal of not drinking it and then i drink it and um my wife we, we, we've subscribed to one of these coffee bag companies that send you them in the post you know supposedly it has more ethical packaging and less of a um supply chain and all the rest of it to me it tastes good but to her it was <laughs> giving her a twitch in her eye oh wow oh, i've had that the yeah. strength of the coffee is just so much stronger than anything in a supermarket that it was actually making her eye twitch Ooh. I thought, God, it's, it is actually quite powerful stuff, isn't it? That, you, that a lot of people drink sort of six cups a day and don't really think about. Well, like caffeine doesn't make Martin stay awake at night. He's caffeine proof in that way. Or it doesn't make him any less asleep than he is during the day anyway. That is the problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this conversation actually reminds me that there was a, a gizmo that I tested a few years ago when I used to have a gadget column. It was a beans to cup coffee machine. But instead of it being the beans that you put in that have been roasted and then it grinds the beans and then puts the water through and gives you a cup of coffee, you got sent in the post direct from Nicaragua what you're describing as the cherry, basically. Um, I suppose they've taken the fruity bit off, but you got a green stem, like a pod. You got a raw bean. You got a raw bean. And then you put that into the machine. You press a button. You have to wait like 40 minutes. Oh, it roasted the beans in the machine, all at the touch of one button, then uh, ground them, then made you a cup of coffee. That seems worse than buying roasted beans that have been roasted by a professional. You don't have to worry about them going off. Yeah, won't they last long? And then you can just use them in any other coffee device. That's right. I mean, my feeling on it in the end was... This is a really interesting first iteration of a device, but this is not a consumer product. The heat involved in actually cooking the beans in the right way was quite intense. Like, I was worried my kitchen was going to catch fire. It was like a bright oh, red God. light coming out of this thing. No. But the audacity of the concept was quite compelling. If one day this, like, evolved to the stage where it is as simple as making an espresso, that would be an incredible product. Like, if you could take a raw bean and turn it into coffee in five minutes. But, I mean, we were not at that stage yet. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Answer Me This. However, we would like your questions for the next episode of Answer Me This via email or voicemails attached to emails 
or you can call our very unreliable phone line if you must. Our contact details are available on our website. AnswerMeThisPodcast.com Where you'll also find links to follow us on social media and to the Answer Me This store where we sell our first 200 episodes of the show uh, and also our six exclusive albums uh, of yes. material you will never hear on our free feed. What would be good for this season? Maybe answer me this sports day? Wimble sports are impending. They're actually happening, I think. A bit about the Wimble sports in there. There's a little bit about athletics as well. I suppose that's happening again. There's also answer me this holiday, where even if you're not going anywhere, you can be transported. <laughs> Much cheaper than a holiday as well. Uh, <laughs> so do check those out. Obviously, by uh, buying those products, you are helping support your uh, local friendly independent podcast as well. And don't forget to listen to our other work as well, such as Ollie Man's brand new show. Yes, do it now, for God's sake. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Search for The Retrospectors on your podcast app. I think if you like this show, you will like The Retrospectors. I'll also put a link on ollieman.com where you can uh, find all my podcasts listed. Uh, Helen, tell us what else you've got in the podverse. Well, uh, on Veronica Mars Investigations, we have reached, or we are about to reach, season four. The final season that really angered the fans. So looking forward to getting to the things that made them really fucking pissed off. (laughs) And there's The Illusionist as well. A couple of uh, really interesting episodes recently about cakes and censorship and protest. Uh, So there was one about um, cakes being renamed as protest and then there was another which was... um, newspapers being censored in Brazil printing these fake cake recipes to get the word out there to the readers that uh, something was afoot except instead the readers were just making cakes that were a load of shit <laughs> so uh, you can find that on The Illusionist which is at theillusionist.org Martin you make podcasts too uh, a podcast I make called Maddie's Sound Explorers uh, which is a, a science podcast for kids with a new piece of music every episode just got nominated for a uh, British Radio Academy Award that's exciting Mazaltov. That's a st- stamp of quality. Martin, um, Martin. I'm sure that your eight-year-old doesn't care whether it's been nominated for award, but uh, it is a good show, and uh, you can listen along. It's designed to be listened to with your kid. With your kid's favourite TV person, Maddie Moat. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and also make a podcast called Song by Song, which is about the music and film of Tom Waits. We've just your had- kid's favourite musician. <laughs> your kid's favourite. Uh, sounds a bit like the Cookie Monster. So do check that out at Song by Song Podcast. And halfway through the month, you will get a retro episode of Answer Me This in your feed with a little commentary of remorse from us. (laughs) And we'll see you with a fresh new Answer Me This on the first Thursday of June. Until then, bye-bye. Get the retrospectives.